Well, 2021 was quite a year, wasn't it? And now that COVID is over, oh, <laughs> wait a minute, I think I read that on Friday we had more infections in one day than we've ever had throughout the whole pandemic. You see, whether COVID is ever over or not, what we need to understand is that in this world, in this life, stuff happens. And it's going to continue to happen. And if it's not COVID, it's going to be cancer or it's going to be unemployment. It's going to be tornadoes or fires or floods. It's going to be shootings or social unrest or family dysfunction. Something bad is going to happen. Toby Mack in his song, The Promised Land, captured that angst well with these words. Out here on this desert road, it's hot as fire but I've grown cold, circling like a plane that never lands. And even though the questions change, the answers always stay the same. Maybe someday I will understand. So I'm wondering, got me wondering, where's my promised land? You see, what are we to do in a world of so many uncertainties and questions? The psalmist in Psalm 55 asked that same question, and he was going through problems probably worse than you or I are today. And he said in that psalm, Oh, that I had the wings of a dove, that I might fly away to a safe place and be at rest. And I wonder this morning, if you were to look deep in your heart, wouldn't you love to be able to fly on the wings of a dove and just get away from it all? Would anybody like to do that this morning? Yeah. You want to fly on the wings of a dove and land in a place of peace and rest? The good news is that you can. There is a dove on whose wings we can fly and arrive in a place of peace and rest. And flying on those wings, I believe, means understanding what is real in this world and what is only shadows. Discerning what is lasting and distinguishing it from what is temporary. You see, there are two levels of reality in this world. There's the physical world that we can see and feel and touch. And then there's the spiritual world, the things of God and his kingdom, the, the unseen things of this world. And as human beings, we are spiritual beings inside of physical bodies and the danger for us is that we too often focus on the level of the physical and we lose track of the spiritual. So to get ready for 2022 and to say goodbye or perhaps for some good riddance to 2021, the Bible this morning can give us a new perspective on life so that we might actually welcome in 2022 joyfully and if we can see well enough and far enough, we might even be able to thank God for 2021. The perspective that I want us to think about this morning is to make the focus of our thinking our eternal home. Now, if you came to the Christmas concert this year, that was the theme of it, and we still have the set here of, of a home. And I thought it would be helpful as we begin a new year to think about, in a little bit more depth, our eternal home. Growing up, home for me was a very 
special place. And I realize it may have been for many of you, but as soon as I say that, I know that for some of you, home was not a special place. And for a few of you, home may have been a house of horrors. And, and I'm, I'm sorry about that. That's not what home was meant to be. Home was very special for me in a way that it probably wasn't for you because from the time I was six, I only lived six months out of the year at home. The other six months, I was away at boarding school in the northern part of Pakistan where my parents served as missionaries. Now there, we were at about 7,000 feet altitude in the foothills of the Himalaya Mountains and there was about 10 feet of snow every winter. So we went to school in the summer and we got the winter vacation off. And my absolute favorite day of the year, even better than Christmas, was that first Friday in December when we got to go home from boarding. We would wake up and be so excited we could hardly think about our classes. All we could think about was going home. And sure enough, that afternoon my dad would drive in with his VW minivan and the kids would climb in we would take the three-hour drive over the mountains to, to home, and it would fly by like a moment. And then we would be home. We'd go into our rooms. We'd take our stuff there and just soak it all in until our mom called us for dinner, and there she had prepared for us our favorite meal. And I could have lived in that moment forever. This morning, I'd like us to get a biblical perspective on our eternal home. And I want to do that through three lenses from the scripture. Through a person, through a people, and then through all peoples. First of all, through a person, Abraham. Turn back again to Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God told Abraham to do something very strange and unusual, particularly in that age and time when travel was dangerous and difficult. He told him to pick up his family, lock, stock, and barrel, and move to someplace he had never even heard of. And you might wonder why Abraham did that. And if I asked you, maybe you would say the reason is he wanted to obey God. And you would be right. He did want to obey God. In fact, Romans tells us that by obeying God, he declared his faith in God, and that faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. But there was more to the story than that. We learn the rest of the story in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham was actually a very shrewd investor because he realized that God was offering him in exchange for a few decades on this earth an eternal home that had far greater and lasting significance. He realized he was trading in a few years on earth for something far far better. He knew that if he followed God, God would reward him with a city, it describes, with foundations whose architect and builder was God. Now think about that. It was worth him living in tents for decades, 
pulling up stakes every time that the pasture lands got eaten up, living in the heat and the cold and the rain in tents. This is the patriarch of our faith, lived in tents, but he considered it worth it because of the promise. What was that reward? What was that lasting city that God had promised him for which he was willing to give up everything on this earth? Genesis 15, 1 gives us a clue. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. God said, Abram, if you trust me enough to obey me, if you trust me enough to consider the things of this world insignificant, I will both be a shield for you, protecting you for the days of your earthly journey, and then I am going to be your great reward in the end. I'm going to give you, he said, myself. And Abraham, by faith, saw the value of that bargain, and he entered into it eagerly, and he obeyed God and went. The reward of his pilgrimage was God himself. What he believed now by faith would one day become sight when he went to live with God forever. And so he went. A person, Abraham. Secondly, a people, the Jews. Now this is a long story. You're pretty familiar with it, I'm sure. But turn back to Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. God had made a promise now to Abraham that applied to his descendants, the people. And the promise was that they would receive a piece of territory on this earth, the land of Canaan. Now, God's plans sometimes take long and circuitous routes. Have you ever noticed that? We like to go from point A to point B directly. But God will often take us from point C to point Z and then maybe finally bring us back to point B. And that's what he did with his people, the Jews. He had promised them a land and a home on this earth, but my goodness, the journey there took a long time. You will recall that after living in Canaan for three generations, the people of God moved down to Egypt to get food during a great famine. And there they stayed 400 years. And you thought two years of a pandemic was bad. And not only that, but things got worse and worse for them. They may have been thinking, God, what are you doing? You've promised us this land. Now you've taken us out of it. And now the Egyptians are mistreating us and enslaving us. And our life here is horrible. And it went on for generation after generation after generation. Until finally the day came when God in his infinite wisdom decided the time was right to move his people out. He said, yes, this is what I'm doing. I've promised it and I'm going to fulfill that promise. And that journey then, which should have only taken a few months, ended up taking 40 more years. Because unlike their father Abraham, the people of Israel did not believe God when he told them that he would give them the land. And so he made them wander in the desert, again in tents, pulling up stakes every few weeks, 
with the flies and the animals and the heat and the cold and the thirst and the hunger. But for those who had not disobeyed God, always with this hope in mind, we are one day closer to the promised land. That was the hope that drove them as they wandered through the wilderness. Now what finally was so great about the promised land? It was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Sure, it had huge grapes and delicious pomegranates and abundant figs, everything that a human being could desire. But those with dual vision understood what God meant when he said in Exodus 19:4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see, the reason God brought his people into the promised land was not just to give them physical blessings, It was to give them the blessing of his presence in their midst. And so we had them make a tabernacle as they traveled through the wilderness. And God, when that tabernacle was ready according to all the specific designs he had given, came down in great glory and lived with his people. And then when they entered the land, they built a temple for the presence of God to live among them. You see, their strength in their their pilgrimage And the goal of their pilgrimage was God himself. And one day they entered the promised land and they received all the promises that God had made to Abraham. So that's a person, that's a people. Finally, the third lens is all peoples, the church. We're going to take a huge jump through thousands of years of history But turn again to Revelation chapter 21 and see God's ultimate plan now for his people and their pilgrimage. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you see the the tie? Abraham's reward was God. The people's reward was God in the promised land. And now for all who believe, from all peoples, all 17,000 ethnic peoples on the face of the earth, everybody who is a member of the church, this is the great promise that our pilgrimage will one day end by being gathered together with God and his presence for all of eternity. You see, the picture of that journey of the people of God through the wilderness for 40 years is simply a picture for those of us in the church who are on not a physical journey, but a spiritual journey. And we're having all the same difficulties and challenges, and it's even longer perhaps than 40 years, but we're headed towards a goal. We're headed towards the promised land. In fact, in Hebrews 4, it says that just as Israel inherited finally the promise of land and entered their rest, so those of us who believe in Jesus will one day enter our eternal rest. Those who, like Abraham, believe the promises of God will enter that eternal rest. Now, 
What happens to us when we believe? Well, the Bible says that we are given a new life, a spiritual life. We are born again. It's, it's kind of like our life operates on two lines. We're, we have this physical life that we're born with, and then at some point in this history, when we are born again, we are given a spiritual life. And now we have two lives that live together, physical and spiritual, and these go side by side, and one day, the physical will be extinguished, and we'll just have our spiritual life left. Now, what God wants us to do as we are waiting for our pilgrimage, our, our final journey home, is to focus not so much on our physical life as on our spiritual life. He wants us to focus not on what can be seen, but on what is unseen. He wants us to think about things that are not just temporary, but things that are eternal. And I want to read you just four scriptures in the New Testament that, that describe how God wants his people to think and how he wants us to think as we enter a new year. In Philippians 3, 19 and 20, it says, while unbelievers, he calls them the enemies of the cross, think only about life on earth, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Very interesting Greek word used only once in the whole Bible, and here it is, you actually know some Greek. The word is polituma. He said, this is your politics now. When you commit to Jesus Christ, when you are born again, your political affiliation is now decided and settled. Your citizenship is not here on the earth. It is in heaven. I was, as I said, born in Pakistan, and I had the privilege of being born to American parents. And so I had the, the choice when I was 18, did I want to be a Pakistani citizen or an American citizen? And I weighed the two options, and it was, it was a pretty easy answer for me. And so now when I travel, I, I carry this document everywhere I go. This is proof that I am an American citizen. Now, I, I've been to many, many countries, probably 70 or so, and I, I love traveling. I love visiting new places. But, but every time I hand my passport over to be examined, I think, I'm an American, and one day, soon, I'm going to go home. My, my values lie here. My, my future is here. My family is here. America is my country. I love my country. And what Paul is saying is that now we need to, yes, continue to love our countries, but there's something greater. We are citizens now at this level of a new kingdom, a different country entirely that can't be seen. And he wants us to think about that country and what our citizenship among those people means. The Bible goes on to say in 1 Peter 2.11 that we are aliens and strangers in the world. The word for alien is perokos, which means next to a house. And I almost laughed out loud when I saw what the Greek word for strangers was. Listen carefully. Again, you know some Greek. It was per epidemos. Pera means next to and epidemis, epidemic, does that ring a bell? Epi we're, we're near an epidemic, that's what the word means. Now, literally in Greek, epidemic means something that lives in a region, usually referring to people, and of course, that's why we call a disease an epidemic, because it becomes natural in a region. And, and these words together simply mean this, that we are temporarily living near natives. Like Abraham was in the land of Canaan, 
and like the Jews were in the wilderness. We don't belong here. We're just aliens and strangers passing through for a little while. Our hope is in another world where we have an enduring city. We're looking for that one to come. Billy Graham said, my home is in heaven. I'm just passing through this world. It would be like if you lived, uh, let's say you grew up in Baltimore. That was where your home was. And, and you're heading back to Baltimore for a vacation at home. And you pull into a truck stop halfway across the, the eastern United States. And you say, oh, I love this truck stop. This is so amazing. I'm just going to decorate it. I'm going to enjoy all the fast food. I'm just going to enjoy camping out here. You'd say, what are you doing? You're an idiot. You're on a journey going home and you're stuck at a truck stop. We are strangers and aliens in this world. And we're enamored with the truck stop. And God says, take your eyes off of that and look at the deeper eternal reality of things that never change that you can't see. Thank you, brother. I preach so much better when Pastor G's in the room, I'm telling you. Third, this is why God said in Colossians 3, and listen to these words carefully from the NLT. He says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. This is the Bible. For you died to this life. Here Paul is saying even something more. This life down here, you've actually died to it. It's, it's lost its allure for you because your commitment is now elsewhere. You have died to this and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life is revealed, you will share in all his glory. You see, that is where our life is. Our life below has died and our real life is hidden with Christ and God. And that's why God wants us to think centrally about that life. He says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4.18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We are the church. We're on our way home. And God wants us to fix our eyes on what is eternal. And if this is the case, it has staggering implications. Let me just give you four quickly. Implications about death. Some of you have experienced death in your families this year. Some of us will this year, I'm, sure, I'm certain. But Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 1, it's necessary for me to stay on earth, but if I had my druthers, he said, I'd rather die. That's, that's really what he said in Philippians 1. He said, because that is better for me by far. It's no contest. But, but he says, I know I need to stay here to help you grow in your faith, so I'll, do, I'll be here as long as God has me here. Why is that better by far? Because he was going to then get more of Christ. And Paul was all about knowing Christ. And he could only see him now by faith, but when he died, he was going to be with him face to face. And so death was not something to be feared, but something to be welcomed. And as Christians, we should have a secret death wish. Now don't act on it, but we should desire to be away from this body and with Christ forever. Now if you didn't catch that, imagine for a moment flying 
Next weekend, when it's four degrees here in Indianapolis, on an airplane to Barbados for a month, is anybody going to feel sorry for you that you're flying to Barbados? No, they would want to get on the plane with you to that destination. My friends, death is simply boarding a plane for a destination that is going to make the beaches of Barbados look like the streets of Minneapolis in winter. And we begrudge anybody dying who believes in Jesus. Oh, my friends, what a hope we have upon death. Secondly, money. This is why our possessions mean less to us than those who are of the world. It's why the early church eagerly, it says joyfully, accepted the confiscation of their property. Because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. Now, why was their property confiscated? Because they were Christians. And if that day comes for us here in the United States, we should not moan and groan about it. We should do what? We should joyfully and eagerly accept it because we know we have better and lasting possessions. Here, you want my home? Take it. I've got a mansion in heaven. You want my car? Take it. I'm going to be flying around heaven. I won't need a car anymore. You see, money is, it's like Confederate currency our dollar is. Once the war is over, once the journey is done, it's going to be worth absolutely nothing. It's just paper. It's temporary. It's going away. And that's why we delight to send our treasures on ahead. So they're waiting for us. And along with others who come to faith in Jesus in heaven. Third, our trials. This is why we can persevere through any trial. Because we get God's perspective on our trials and not man's. Do you remember when Peter objected to what Jesus said when he foretold his own suffering and death? Peter said, no, this could never happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus got so angry with him, he rebuked him. He even called him Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. Why? What was his problem? He said, you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. You're not understanding the purpose of these trials. And why was Jesus' heart at peace even while the storm was raging inside him as he faced his death? And Peter's was all upset because he understood that our temporary sufferings are producing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. And for the joy set before him then, Jesus embraced the cross. And finally, holiness. Peter says, because we are aliens and strangers in this world, we should resist those temptations and the lusts of the flesh that so easily entangle us. John said, beloved, what a wonderful thing it is that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And we don't know yet what we shall be, but when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When our pilgrimage is over, when we see Jesus as he is, we will be like him. And then he says in 1 John 3, 3, Therefore, we purify ourselves even as he is pure. My friends, we are the bride of Jesus Christ. He is coming back when our pilgrimage is over. And we want to be pure and ready for him when he gets back. Now, I know what you're thinking. You want to know exactly what heaven is going to be like. Because you're, you're wanting to hedge your bets, and there are some pretty 
cool toys here on earth. Is it going to be worth giving all those up? Well, the best picture of heaven, really the only picture of heaven in the Bible is in Revelation, what we just read and the verses after that. You've heard of the streets of gold and the gates of gems and the, uh, the foundations of pearls in that city. But as C.S. Lewis says, the scriptural picture of heaven is just as symbolical as the picture which our desire, unaided, invents of itself. Now, Lewis is a little bit hard to understand, especially on January 2nd, first service. But here's what he meant. He, he meant that heaven is so unique, it, it's unlike anything we've ever experienced, that, that even the very best we can think of is only a symbol of what that's going to be. And if gold and gems and pearls aren't your thing, what is your thing? Now, seriously, what would be the greatest world you could possibly imagine? It's a good exercise just for a moment to think about that. I thought about it this morning, and here's my answer. It would be a 12-foot-long brownie banana split courtside at a Boston Celtics game in the garden. That, for me, would be heaven. And what God is saying is, I, I can't even describe it to you. Take all of that times a trillion, and you won't be anywhere close to what heaven is like. Paul himself went up to the third heaven, whatever that means. This is in the Bible. And he said he heard things there that he was not permitted to tell. He said they were inexpressible. Because the, the joy and the splendor and the magnificence is so great that we won't even be able to take it all in, my friends. That is where we who believe are going. That is our promised land. The goal of our pilgrimage is God himself. And Jesus promised that he was going away to prepare a place for us. But that one day he would come back and take us to be with him so that we would be where he is that's been his plan from the very beginning of time, to create a people for himself. And such are we who believe. Jonathan Edwards said, to go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. There's just no way to describe it. Toby Mack found his answer and reflection on the word of God and in the church. And here's how his song ends. Well, I've run this earth for many years, and there's one thing I know. There's nowhere on this side of heaven where streets are made of gold. I've long laid down my grand illusions, looking toward the day that I'll be home. Through all these seasons, I'm still believing you're my promised land. In all my grieving, I'm still believing you're my promised land. He got it. My friends, our promised land is not a place. It is a person, Jesus Christ. How is this possible for sinners like us? As we sung this morning, we needed a savior. And we got one. One who gave up his home in heaven to live on this earth so that we could go home to him forever. One who as the creator of the universe, had no place to lay his head, even though the birds of the air have their homes and the foxes have their homes, but Jesus had no home. He was a pilgrim, but for the joy set before him, he gave it all up for us. That's how we know we're going home. 
Now, what I'm not saying this morning is that life here on earth is unimportant. That's the last thing I'm saying. Or that we should all become monks and hide away in a monastery. Absolutely not. In fact, Billy Graham went on to say, heaven doesn't make this life less important. It makes it more important. God created this world good, and he has purposes for our time here. But we need to filter our decisions and our activities through the lens of eternity. What will impact God's eternal kingdom? And then once we've made those decisions, my friends, let's live fully here on this earth. Let's study hard. Let's excel at our jobs. Let's love our families, develop genuine relationships, help people, invent things, play music, create art, compete in sports. Let's do all of these things. But let's keep love for Jesus at the center of everything that we do. And to those who aren't yet part of the family of God, you haven't believed in Jesus and received him, I have a word of warning and an invitation for you this morning. You see, this celestial city that we are going to, this place of indescribable joy, is for members only. And if you're not a member of the family of God, you don't get into that city. In fact, it's even worse than that. The gates will be shut and you will be thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Revelation 20. But the beauty is that there's an invitation for you this morning. I think that you understand, whether you're in this room or watching online, that there's something that even if you had everything in this world, would not be satisfied inside you. And that's why C.S. Lewis said, the fact that our heart yearns for something earth cannot supply is proof that heaven must be our home. If you have a slight inkling that you're not going to be fulfilled here on earth, come to Jesus this morning. We'd love to talk to you after the service if you would like to be led into how do you get one of these passports to get into the kingdom of God. It's it's easy. It's free. You can do it this morning, but it's going to cost everything you have. Well, what was the worst part about the three-month vacation? What was the worst part about any vacation you've been on? It always comes to an end. And there would be that dreaded day in early March when we would have to pack up our trunks, get back in the car, drive back over the hills. Felt like a 20-hour drive that time. Back to cold, dank boarding school. Oh, if only we could be home forever. It's like the unicorn said at the end of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. You, you should read that chapter if you want a glimpse of what heaven might be like. The unicorn says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in to the delight of your soul. And then finally, Jonathan Edwards said this, God is the greatest good of the reasonable creature. Enjoyment of him is our proper happiness, and it is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied, much better than fathers or mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. And one day, maybe soon, 
All of us who believe will be caught up in that sun and that fountain and that ocean forever. And this blessed hope, my friends, this blessed assurance is all that we need to get us through this next year, whatever it may hold. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, how we thank you that you planned from before the creation of time to pour out your abundant blessings on your children, your family. How I thank you that you have been gracious to me and you've opened my eyes to receive your gift of life in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help me and help us as a church and every individual hearing my voice as we enter a new year to think on things that are above, not on things on the earth. That our souls might be so satisfied in you that we find joy and delight in faith as we wait. And that faith will one day be sight and bring us forever into your joy because of what Jesus did for us. In his name we pray, amen.